Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Those are verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 51, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, July the 22nd. 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 9, verse 22, through chapter 10, verse 15, so a very long reading from the book of Joshua today. Uh, In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 1 to 10, and then continuing in uh, the book of Romans as well, chapter 15, verses 14 to 24. So remember yesterday what had happened was the men of Gibeon who were in the land came and pretended to be people from a distant country in order to get a treaty and a covenant between themselves and the Israelites, lest they do to them what they did to the people of Ai and to Jericho, which is to say they destroyed them utterly. So Joshua summoned them, the men of Gibeon, and said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we're from very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it told your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Now, you're going to learn something about these people in a minute. Um, I'm not going to jump far ahead, but you could come to a conclusion here that would be way premature and would be wrong about the men of Gibeon because they feared greatly and came and, and tricked the Israelites. You could, you could assume, well, these men are a bunch of cowards, but that's not the case. They actually did fear greatly because of what they knew and what they had heard. And now, we behold, we're in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it under the terms of the covenant of life. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So it's a perpetual covenant, but with their terms. So the the people of Israel are in covenant with the living God, and the terms are, you know, this is a covenant of life, But on you, you're to be a kingdom of priests, a royal nation. Here, this covenant between Israel and them in the name of the living God, it requires something of the people of Gibeon. That is, that they be drawers of water and cutters of wood. So as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and his king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Remember, that's exactly what the men of Gibeon said. We feared greatly because of what you had done. So now the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, fears greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So these men of Gibeon, who looked weak by coming out to do this 
this trickery and deception, then they, they looked that way and they feared greatly for their lives. What we're told here is that all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it's made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So we've got five different kings now going up against Gibeon. The king of Jerusalem knew that he wasn't sufficient to do that, so he gets four other kings to come up and go against Gibeon. And the men of Gibeon said to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servant. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Now this kind of sounds like, in fact, way back in Genesis when Lot was taken captive and Abraham has to go and help and deliver him and to deliver the three, four kings from the, or the three kings from the four kings. And so here we get this same idea going on. And now, because they're in covenant with one another for protection, then the Gibeonites can reach out to Joshua and say, come down here and help us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So in in this particular case, God used this... um, ill-conceived alliance that he made with the Gibeonites, he used it to draw these other kings who are in the land who will have to ultimately be conquered. He, he brings them out to destroy them all in one fell swoop here when they come out against Gibeon. So without going forward into these places, Joshua's going to conquer these five kings. He says, don't fear them, for I've given them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So God and the people are fighting together. And so God wipes out these five kings and their armies here in this one place on the ascent of Beth Horon all the way to Azekah. So so God wiped out those five kings. So a lot of the work gets done this day in the conquest of the land. And it's because of this ill-conceived alliance. Well, even though it wasn't God's intention that they formed that alliance, God used it. He used the mistake that the leaders made in order to entice these five kings and their armies out. And so they could fight them all in one place. They didn't have to do it one at a time. They're able to destroy all five of these at one fell swoop. It's an amazing thing, the way God used this. Now, did God know that they were going to do this stupid thing? Yes. Did he have a plan? Yes, obviously. So it's a beautiful thing. And so God ends up killing more of them with hailstones than Israel killed that day with a sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? 
the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and didn't hurry to set for about a whole day? There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. It, it was one of those days that Joshua didn't want to end. They wanted to make hay while the sun shone. And so Joshua asked that the sun stand still in the sky in order that they could complete the conquest of these peoples, because otherwise they would have been able to get away and hide in various places here. And so Joshua prays, no, Lord, let's, let, let's get this done today. So let's make the day last longer so that we can finish this work. And, and so they did. They destroyed those five kings there. When uh, in the gospel, so remember that Jesus has been tried. We, we saw that Peter had denied him. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of Israel took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So they'd already found him guilty, and they'd already said that he deserves death, but now they have to come forward and make that official. And then they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And as I've said before, they have to do this because they can make the decision that he deserves to die. And they can they can pass the death sentence, but they don't have the capacity to carry it out in Roman Palestine. So when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. So, as I said, I believe that what Judas was trying to accomplish here was not the cross. I believe that what Judas was trying to accomplish was to get Jesus backed into a corner in a situation where he had to openly declare himself and then come forward as this messianic king who will deliver them from Rome. And so when he sees that he's condemned, and this thing's going not just to trial, but it's going to the, to the uh, penalty phase, he, he backs out and, and gets nervous about this and says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. I, I recognize that this is a, an innocent man. And they said to him, what's that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, that's your problem, not ours. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. What a bizarre idea, right? I mean, it's blood money. This money was given for the blood of another man, and therefore we can't put it back into the treasury. Well, who gave it? I mean, that's the issue is is that you gave the money so the money is defiled but you're not huh what an interesting concept you you know that it was blood money and you paid it out of the treasury as blood money where's the sin and where's the defilement here does it have to do with the money how can you continue to be a chief priest when you paid blood money it's very bizarre the, the, the hurdles you have to jump through to justify yourself, but to consider this blood money, absolutely unbelievable that anybody would even be able to do the mental gymnastics necessary to make that happen. So they took counsel and bought with them with them the proceeds, the uh, silver, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So we got blood money and the field of blood, but the chief priests continue in their office, even while they're the ones who played the, paid the blood money. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him <clears throat> on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. It's an unbelievable situation that they would have done such a thing. 
um, and that they would have, have failed to take responsibility, but they would have considered the, the money to be defiled, but not themselves who paid the money and who served the Lord. Absolutely unbelievable that, that they could be able to do that, that leap of logic that makes no sense at all. Paul's wrapping up his, his arguments here, and he, he's not going to go back to the, um, the, the, the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. No, he, he's going to defend and affirm his apostleship. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. This would have been based on what Paul had heard of the church at Rome. He says, I've got a lot of confidence in you. I really do. I believe that you're full of goodness, that you're filled with knowledge, and that you're able to instruct one another. In other words, you don't need me on that to do those things. But, but, (laughs) on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. When he says the priestly service, what's he thinking about? What he's saying is, is, is that, that I've been given this trust to handle holy things and to do so in a certain kind of way. And so I have to do that with reverence and I have to do it with fear. I believe that I have some things to say to you, and that's what I've written is explaining how we're all one in Christ Jesus. And we're one in Christ Jesus because before that we were one in sin. Jew or Gentile, didn't make any difference. We're all reconciled to God through Christ. So that's what he's trying to say is, is that, that how do we live in peace and harmony with one another? Because we, we no longer have those distinctions. We understand that we needed grace and mercy, and that's all found in Jesus. And, and, and so that's what I'm telling you. That's the gospel that I have to give, is, is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All deserve death. All need a Savior. Circumcised or uncircumcised doesn't make any difference. But Paul says this is a priestly service that he's been given. Now, what does that mean, that he has a priestly service? What it means is you, you're, you're entrusted with the holy things of God. And, and there's a great trust in that because that trust cannot be broken. They need to be careful about how you handle holy things. He says, so I've been entrusted to all that, given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So we've got to bring them in the right way. We can't do it the cheap way, the easy way. We, no, they've got to come in. Everybody has to come in here the same way. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And this is exactly what he told the church at Corinth. I refuse to know, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And that's the most important thing. And Paul says, I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And then he says the three ways how. By, wor- by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. And those are the things that Paul always cites, that our gospel came not just in, in, uh, in eloquent words, but in power. He always leaves room for those three things. It's not just word. It's also deed, I, the way I carry myself among you. And Paul tells multiple people to imitate him. By the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God. The signs and wonders, Paul expected those to be there as part of the package of the proclamation of the gospel. And the Spirit of God is that which brings us to faith. 
He says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation, but as it's written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul says, I try and go places where nobody's ever preached the gospel before, because I want to make sure that I'm not building on somebody else's foundation, but, but that I'm laying a foundation in these places, and I, and I know that the foundation is good. I'm not going to go argue with people where, where this has already been proclaimed. No, I'm going to places that don't know anything, so I can make sure that that blank slate for the gospel is laid appropriately that I'm not teaching somebody falsehoods, and that I don't have to argue with people over what has already been preached. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. And what he means by that is to say, I've been hindered from coming to you for two basic reasons. One is, I don't go where the gospel's already been preached, but also, I've gone a lot of places. I have, God has sent me to all these other places where the gospel's never been preached, because it's already been preached there. And he knows that. He says, I'm full of confidence about this. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. He says, so I've done everything that I needed to do in these places. There's no new places for me to go and preach the gospel. And so I'm done with this area, and I've longed to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. In other words, you're not my ultimate destination. It ends up that he is, that that is his ultimate destination, because that's where Paul dies in Rome. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. That's where he believed the Holy Spirit was leading him, was to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So I'm hoping to get something from you. And I intend to enjoy your company for a while before I go on to Spain. But Paul is very clear that that Rome is not his be-all, end-all. Nope, his be-all, end-all is continuing to preach the gospel in places where it's never been preached before. And so Paul's expectation is that, that he'll be able to do that. But he wants to receive something and give something in Rome before he does that. And so what we need to continually do is trust the Lord in all things, to make our plans, but submit our plans to the Lord, and then to realize that he absolutely has the capacity to rectify and use the mistakes we made for his glory, just as he did with this situation in the book of Joshua where, those, where they made an ill-conceived and ill-advised treaty, but God used it to bring out those five kings so that they didn't have to fight them one at a time in their own places. No, God chose the battlefield. He chose everything necessary, but only because of the failure of the people to discern the will of God in regards to the people of Gibeon. God can use anything for his glory. And that's exactly what we see in the betrayal of Judas. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out and make mistakes that God might get glory. That's not what I'm saying at all. No, it'd be better if we never did that. It would be better if we just trusted the Lord in all things and if we spent much time in prayer and seeking.